evangelical voices on the air and online and their impact on abortion rights in America. Rodrigo Duterte leaves office and takes a parting shot at journalism in the Philippines. And this Pakistani province produces plenty of news that somehow goes unreported. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and examine how news is reported. Americans are dealing with the aftermath of a seismic Supreme Court decision overturning a woman's legal right to have an abortion. The U.S. media have been providing wall-to-wall -wall coverage of a legal judgment that stands to affect millions of women. And many news organizations have been criticized for their binary approach to covering this story, giving anti-abortion voices equal time, when all of the polls show that those voices represent a clear minority. Most in that minority are evangelical Christians, and they, along with influential evangelical media outlets, have been in celebration mode. They've been waiting, lobbying for this moment, having elevated the abortion issue to the forefront of American politics and kept it there. Along the way, anti-abortion advocates have injected a slew of misinformation and anti-scientific rhetoric into the discussion, muddying the narrative and finding a way to turn a minority view into federal law. That's our starting point this week, abortion in America. In a country so divided by COVID-19 and how to handle the pandemic, and a world still largely in denial over the climate breaking down, the American media find themselves once again weighing the value of science against belief. My body, my in the so-called debate over a woman's right to have an abortion. People just tend to interpret scientific findings through the lens of their own identity and political values. Hospitalization and death. COVID, for example. How many scientific findings do we need to show that vaccines work? And yet, uh, those who are anti-vax cite uh, studies that show masks don't work, vaccines don't work. Nobody trusts anything they disagree with. And abortion is no different. And so if I am a Christian and if I am uh, committed to the pro-life idea, and that is a part of my identity, I am very likely to reject any kind of scientific finding that is inconsistent with that identity. The abortion debate uh, in America is not that scientifically sound, and that's because a politician is not an expert in the experiences of abortion providers and abortion patients. And for a long time, American media was really committed to a binary, worshiping at the altar of both sides journalism, when abortion is simply a healthcare issue that has been politicized. In the abortion debate, there's really two main competing needs. There's the needs of the person who's pregnant, and there are the needs of the infant. We couldn't do that awful thing to a little baby, not to a little baby, dear heart. And in the conservative media, the life and rights of the infant are far disproportionately um, weighed against the rights and life of the person who's pregnant. And the focus is really on the religious discourse. This is a person. The moral discourse and the political discourse rather than the legal and medical or public health discourse, which is what we really should be focused on. Thank God for 
some sane members of the Supreme Court. On right-wing pro-Trump news networks like Fox and OAN, the coverage of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade and its enormous implications has been at times celebratory. That is the future of America, the pro-life movement. A victory for life. Treated as a vindication of a Republican president who lost the election, but not before appointing three new judges to tilt the makeup of an already highly politicized Supreme Court, which then delivered. Fox, One, One American News or Newsmax are going to talk about this as a victory for states' rights, as a victory for the conservative agenda. For all pro-life Americans. I've seen a little bit of, hey, we need to recognize how great Trump was for, for accomplishing uh, what we had worked so long to accomplish. In right-wing spaces like Fox News or on Life News, they are gleeful. However, reporting has shown that Republicans are actually a little worried that this decision came down right now because it wasn't supposed to come down before the midterms, right? And so the next phase of Republican media is going to be trying to continue to justify that glee when it will become a real political issue in about four months here in America. You know, Fox and a whole host of others have seen the value in parroting what CBN and Pat Robertson has to say. We have been complicit in terminating the lives of in excess of 50 million precious unborn children. I mean, they have been loud and just relentless in their pursuit of this over the last 50 years. Pat Robertson created CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, in 1960. By the late 80s, Robertson and CBN were on the front lines of the culture wars, closely tied to the Reagan White House. CBN also cozied up to Donald Trump, and he returned the favor, granting it interview after interview. The network and its signature program, The 700 Club, provided Trump with a broadcast portal into the homes of evangelical Christians. Most American Christians support a woman's right to an abortion. Abortion hurts women! Evangelical Christians are the exception. They represent a minority, about 30% of Americans, but with the help of CBN and other Christian networks, they have long punched above their weight politically. They oppose ideas like same-sex marriage, transgender identity, even vaccine mandates, but the abortion issue has long been their rallying call, providing CBN with a lifeline. These evangelical organizations needed abortion in order to raise money because it was the hottest of the hot buttons. Each time we did a telethon, abortion had its own day, a complete day of fundraising. Bobby Connor is an ordinary man who's overcome extraordinary circumstances. He survived an abortion attempt by his mother. And it was always somehow related to an attack on the family. We could say, we need your help to stop this, to raise money. People would respond by opening their wallets. So all of these evangelical organizations focus on the family. You know, hell, they're all built around abortion. The Supreme Court is, is on their side now. Uh, that, the, that six to three, the future is just looking so good for the Christian right. And so in these religious spaces, you see unapologetic, unequivocal, spiking the football even, uh, that this is, is something that we should be celebrating.
Another movement celebrating this role reversal? Numerous anti-abortion advocacy groups across the U.S., most of which are affiliated with and funded by evangelicals. They've flooded the internet with material aimed at converting Americans into their camp. Together, we can create a community where abortion is rejected. Organizations like Live Action have mainstreamed a lot of disinformation, rhetoric that has no basis in science, some of which comes with danger attached. Tech giants like Google, Facebook, and Twitter have seldom intervened, and stop us if this sounds familiar, they are profiting along the way. The short answer is that they're not doing much at all. I have been researching abortion, mis and disinformation online for the past five months, and I have never encountered a piece of content that has a label on it. A lot of the misinformation circulating now is about medication abortion. Medication abortion is actually safer than surgical abortion. And a lot of the myths circulating online claim the exact opposite. So a lot of the tactics right now from anti-abortion folks are why there's a lot of misinformation. And they've had real allies in Silicon Valley. Companies like Facebook allows crisis pregnancy centers uh, to use their tracking software to understand how and where people are visiting from because these are simply data sites masquerading as social media. Like The actual job of social media is to collect data about us. It's a money-making business about us. And your pregnancy, or lack thereof, is a data point about you. One last point from the last century, since that's where abortion rights in America are headed. God bless you. Thank you. A footnote that an evangelical Christian might call a revelation, something that Pat Robertson shared with colleagues at CBN almost 30 years ago. In 1984, Pat Robertson called us, uh, very few of us, into a meeting in the boardroom and he said he had just come back from his prayer time in the mountains and God had told him, basically, we must form a shadow government because the whole thing is gonna collapse and they're gonna need us to run things when everything goes wrong. So that should give you an idea of how this was taking place in the shadows of our culture. And if you think that this is the end for the evangelicals, wish list, you're sadly mistaken because they will go after everything. He just couldn't leave quietly. Rodrigo Duterte, the now former president of the Philippines, has taken one last swipe at his journalistic nemesis on his way out the door. Flo Phillips has the details. This past Wednesday, Rappler, the Philippines' leading digital news outlet, co-founded by Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa, was officially ordered to shut down for a second time. And the diktat from the Philippine Securities and Exchange Commission came just one day before former President Rodrigo Duterte left office. It reaffirmed the commission's original decision to revoke Rappler's license, claiming the news site was violating restrictions on foreign ownership in mass media something Rappler has been contesting since 2018. Rappler says it will appeal this ruling, calling the proceedings highly irregular. Duterte made plenty of enemies in the Filipino media, especially outlets that saw through his strongman act, and he did not mince his words. 
Just because you are a journalist, you are not exempted from assassination. If you are a son of a... Rappler ended up on the Duterte government's hit list through its award-winning journalism, exposing the president's so-called war on drugs as a disproportionate war on poverty, detailing the thousands of people killed since the authorities refused to. Ang kwento dito ay hindi nilalabas ng gobyerno kung ano talaga ang rami ng mga taong namatay na sa gera kontra droga. Ressa maintains it's business as usual at Rappler, despite the shutdown order. And she's grown accustomed to having lawfare used against her and her site. In less than two years, the Philippine government filed 10 arrest warrants against me. I've had to post bail 10 times just to do my job. At least seven of those cases are still active. And with the arrival of Duterte's successor, Fernando Marquez Jr. into office, and Duterte's daughter as vice president, Rappler's editor will be keeping her lawyers busy for some time to come. Thanks, Flo. Balochistan is a land of contradictions. It is Pakistan's largest province and its least populated. It is rich in natural resources, minerals, gold, coal, gas, and yet the Baloch people are the poorest in the country. It has been the site of a separatist struggle ever since Pakistan came into existence, yet it is barely covered in the domestic news media, not for a lack of trying. For decades, Baloch journalists have risked their lives to report on topics such as corruption in local government, to the resource grab, to the Pakistani state's involvement in the kidnapping and killing of Baloch activists. A few reporters from the Pakistani mainstream media have tried to cover the region too. Some have paid with their lives, most face intimidation, and many have just quit and fled the area. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on the resounding silence that surrounds Balochistan, the toughest place to do journalism in Pakistan. It looks perfect. It sounds even better. For months, this song, Waja, or Friend, about the region of Balochistan, has been playing incessantly on Pakistan's TV channels. Not just on entertainment outlets, it pops up in ad breaks on news channels too. There's something uncomfortable, surreal, about watching a song about Pakistan's most impoverished, most militarized, and most underreported region playing on a loop this way, being presented this way. It's uh, very consistent with Pakistan state's messaging, which is that Balochistan is a beautiful place. Uh, its people are beautiful. They just sing and dance on the mountains in the deserts by the beach. Yes, there are some hints that there were some dark shadows, but they have been lifted. So it's quite central to how Pakistani states and maybe the rest of Pakistan wants to see uh, Balochistan, a beautiful land without its troublesome uh, people. Balochistan has always been a site of uh, territorial anxiety for the Pakistani state. It borders Afghanistan, Iran, and the Indian Ocean. It's also been a site of mining, uh, so gold, zinc, oil, copper, gas. 
it's a province that functions because of its geostrategic position as a route for the China-Pakistan economic corridor and that has meant just millions and millions in investments from China. That the Pakistani uh, state, especially the military, is really dedicated to uh, protecting. That protection of Balochistan's territory and numerous high-value, high-security projects has not extended to people in the region. For 70 years, Balochistan has been providing the rest of Pakistan with natural gas, meeting more than 50% of the country's needs at times. However, today, fewer than half the cities in Balochistan have access to that gas. Many Baloch use wood and coal for heating and cooking. Balochistan's separatist movement, born prior to Pakistan's creation in 1947, has seen wave after wave of violence, with the Pakistani military resorting to brutality to rein in the insurgency. There have been countless human rights abuses, enforced disappearances in the thousands of Baloch nationalists, activists, intellectuals and journalists. Balochistan has been actually turned into an information black hole. Kia Baloch used to be a reporter in Balochistan. I was among the few journalists covering Islamic militancy, Baloch separatist movement, uh, human rights abuses. I also covered the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which was accompanied by mass enforced disappearances when nationalists opposed Ch Chinese investment in Balochistan. I have enormous amount of respect for Kia's work. Kia was reporting with a huge amount of attention to detail and evidence, which is why he eventually was subject to threats and had to flee. The intelligence agencies started taping my phone calls. Then they shared a list with me saying that you have been talking to these people. You cannot hide their details from us. Uh, they wanted uh, my name to be uh, to be placed in anti-terror watch list. Yeah, things became very difficult for me to, to work under strict surveillance. The easiest way for me to leave Pakistan was through a student visa. I received admission from a Norwegian journalism school. It was in 2017 and then uh, I never went back to Pakistan. Kia Baloch's story is not unique. The immense pressures from state authorities, military, intelligence and local government, combined with intimidation by insurgents and big corporations investing in Balochistan, meant that for years, doing journalism there was like embarking on a suicide mission. More recently, the number of journalist abductions and deaths has fallen. For media in the region, self-censorship is one method of self-preservation. The other has been for journalists to just leave. Even then, safety is not guaranteed. I want to tell you about uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Sajid Hussain, who was a brilliant uh, journalist uh, out of uh, Balochistan. And uh, he got into trouble for uh, reporting. A fairly straightforward uh, story uh, that the intelligence agencies didn't like. And he was, a, he was a wise man. He was not into taking unnecessary risks. So he left the country immediately after sort of uh, struggling for 10, 11 years. He was given asylum in Sweden and um, a year later he was found dead, drowned in a lake. The Swedish government told the family that it's a suicide. But uh, just hardly after six months, 
are the activists from Balochistan, uh, Karima Baloch, also disappeared in December 2020 from Toronto. Our body was uh, discovered uh, under the same circumstances as Ajido said. She was also found dead uh, inside the river. The police determined that it was a suicidal case. We don't know how they died, but it's very difficult to digest that uh, someone who actually uh, fled Balochistan, came in the West, was happy why he or she would come in society. I have been very much uh, concerned about my security here. Until recently, I was based in Oslo, but uh, now I have uh, moved to a very remote corner of Norway. I avoid meeting people. I avoid visiting big cities. So these things have been taking a very heavy toll on my, on my mental health. None of these stories from Balochistan, of journalists in exile fearing for their lives, of student activists going missing only for their mutilated bodies to be found later, of militants blowing up gas pipes. None of these feature in that song that's all over Pakistan's airwaves. Ironically, the music video, which the branding suggests, has been financed by a corporation with multiple big business interests and a possible eye on Baloch development projects. That video has been getting all this airtime, just as Balochistan has seen a surge of disappearances. Families of the missing have been holding protests and vigils, and they get next to no coverage on the news. The only thing that's considered relevant or significant when it comes to Balochistan tends to be its mega projects. But the people who live there are not seen as significant. If you are a reporter uh, at a Pakistani media outlet and you bring a controversial story to the editorial desk, uh, there's a very, very high chance that your editor will censor it or get visited uh, by an intelligence officer who will tell him or her to censor it. Um, or, or it will be watered down significantly. In other parts of Pakistan, there is actually very, very little interest about what's going on in Balochistan. It's considered practically like a, another country. It's getting a lot of uh, airtime because uh, it's a commercial product sponsored by like a sort of big uh, corporation. Uh, on behalf of uh, government, uh, I uh, suspects. They do not want you to hear. Thousands of people have disappeared. Many of them are being kept in dungeons, tortured every day. Uh, so obviously to drown out those sounds, uh, you make these beautiful videos with catchy lyrics. And then you buy airtime and you can play them for as long as you want. And finally, it has been almost a year since Tunisian President Kais Sayed dismissed the country's prime minister and suspended parliament in what he called a national emergency measure, one that his critics have called a coup. Sayed has recently gone further, firing 57 judges, accusing them of corruption and protecting terrorists. And he's ordered a referendum for the 25th of July to replace the country's constitution. That constitution only dates back to 2014. It was passed by Parliament and was a point of pride for many Tunisians, a symbol of post-Arab Spring democracy. Syed's new constitution would drop Islam as the state religion and give even more power to the president, 
So this referendum call has led to nationwide protests. We're leaving you now with some recommendations of where to go online, outlets and specialists serving up news at this critical time in Tunisia. For French and Arabic speakers, Tunifact is a unit created by the National Union of Tunisian Journalists, along with a Dutch NGO to debunk misinformation. Facebook is where they have most of their followers, but they're also active on Twitter and Instagram. For French speakers, Jeune Afrique is an outlet we've recommended before. It is focused on Francophone African countries and has analysis and reporting on Tunisia. Kashif Media reports in Arabic. It is prolific on YouTube and Instagram. On Twitter, we follow two academics, Mohamed Diahamami, a Tunisia specialist at Syracuse University, as well as Anne Wolfe, a fellow at All Souls College at Oxford University. For French speakers, Hikel Benmafoud, a director of the Tunisia University mission in North America, is also worth a follow. And we'll be keeping an eye out for news on Tunisia too. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.